made a statement that Black Lives Matter, but and they were laughed at because it's evident that they don't see Black lives as valuable. They're exploiting Black lives left and right. And if we look at the titles that they have on their videos, they they speak like they should basically just say exploiting Black people as the title. So just making a statement that Black Lives Matter is really seems like it's really not enough. And it seems like making a statement for a lot of companies really allows them to cover up the the violence that they're doing to uh, what our previous guest, Dr. Ben Both, referred to as black bodies. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res, during the normal speech and debate season, are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. As you hopefully know, we are in the summer. Uh, We're recording this on June 30th, and this is part of our summer series, which is looking at a lot of the chaotic events that have been happening in our country over the last month, month and a half. Uh, We're trying to focus these episodes primarily around the the areas of race relations, protests, riots, rule of law, and criminal justice reform. Today's episode is really going to look at something a little bit next to all of those issues. Uh, We're going to look at the institutional pressure to speak out against systemic racism and the accusation that silence is violence. Uh, I am very excited to introduce our guest today, uh, Mrs. Tori Peterson, a graduate of Hillsdale College, class of 2018. Uh, She is a wife, a mother, a foster care advocate, and a speaker and podcaster on behalf of the foster care movement. Tori, welcome to What's the Res? Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. Well, tell us a little about yourself. I I gathered all of that info from your website, so I apologize if I mangled anything there. Tell us a bit about who you are, where you are in life. What's your story? Yeah, everything you said was spot on. I live in Elbert Lee with my husband and 19-month-old son. I'm also 28 weeks pregnant, I believe. And we also foster slash mentor a young man. We did foster him for a time, but then he was old enough to move out. So he comes and he goes and he sometimes stays here. He sometimes does it. I don't know if I, I never know if I should call myself um, a mother to him because the age difference is like six years. I'm more like an older sister, but there are definitely moments when I am mothering him, when I have to really lay the rules down. So yeah, we're somewhere in between parenting and mentoring this young man. That's a big part of our lives. I am a foster care advocate. I do a lot of things in this realm. I do foster care advocacy within the pro-life movement. I do foster care advocacy as an influencer on social media. I go to our local county agency and speak about trauma once a month. And I write and I speak at various events all over the country whenever I'm asked, really. So that's me in a little nutshell. And the most recent thing that I've done that we're obviously going to talk about is the letter, which was actually totally out of my realm. I, If you look at my website, if you look at my Instagram, I stay very focused on foster care and adoption. But I wrote this letter to Hillsdale College and... To my surprise, it became within my realm and it became viral. <laughs> oh, that, that really, that, that's at least, I know that's how we connected about a week and a half ago. And I, I'm so glad you were willing to come on the show to talk about that. 
Uh, as I read your I read your letter, and I was of course, and just in case, uh, all of our long term listeners will know I managed to bring up Hillsdale about every other episode, if not every single episode. Uh, Tori and I are both graduates from Hillsdale College. Uh, I was I graduated in 2011, so that's a few years apart, but not too far. Uh, and then uh, uh, Hillsdale's a pretty special place, but there's been a bit of a I I, I, t- I kind of want to over-dramatize it and call it a civil war amongst the alums, but that, that seems a bit harsh. But there definitely seems to be a uh, a big divide amongst Hillsdale students, and I suspect we're probably in different social media contact with different generations of students. My, mine are primarily anywhere from 2007 to about 2014 as their graduation years. And I have a lot of friends who they, they seem to have expected the college to speak out as, as everybody else was. And, and we'll certainly get into that. Um, uh, the only thing I did want to mention, uh, just in terms of I, I, one of the things that in your letter you brought up that I thought spoke to your, the authenticity of your advocacy is that you came through the foster care system. Is there anything you want to tell us about that experience that might help with oh later parts of Oh my gosh, how did I show? miss that point? Yeah, I am a former foster youth. That is why that is what started my advocacy. Not uh, there's a lot of um, foster moms and foster parents with huge platforms on social media, and there aren't so many people, um, foster youth, former foster youth, who not just have a platform but are able to have a platform because of the constraints of the foster care system. Oftentimes when you're in care, you're not allowed to have social media. It's just a liability issue. And because of the way the system works, oftentimes when youth emancipate out of the system, they just don't have the tools and the skills to share their experience because oftentimes they're not sharing from a place of healing. I went through a lot of counseling and I have an amazing community. I have an amazing church and an even greater God that has, that has helped me in all this healing. And I think that oftentimes foster youth don't get that. And if you can't, it's very difficult to share experiences from a place of trauma because then we see that the children are going through the trauma all over again. And so for me, I have tried, I've tried my best to amplify foster youth voices. If someone, if I get a former foster youth or current foster youth who messages me, I say, do you want me to share your story? I would be more, more than happy to put it on my social media and tag you because I just want these young people to see how, how powerful their stories are, um, how powerful their testimonies are. So, yes, being a former foster youth is a huge part of my identity. And when it ties into the letter, 23% of foster youth are African-American, but only, they're only 13% of the American population. So mm. that's huge. That's a huge disproportion. And to say that Hillsdale doesn't have a heart for these youth, to say that Hillsdale isn't helping these youth is, is a lie. Secondly, Hillsdale also does the Barney charter schools. I didn't mention this in my letter, but 40% of the students who go to the Barney charter schools are minorities. Mm. Again, that's huge. 
because if we think of the disproportion of how many minorities there are compared to white people in the general population, 40% is a huge number. And Hillsdale and the Barney Charter Schools, as they partner, they strategically place not every single school, but many schools in low poverty communities that that need a good education. So again, to say that Hillsdale isn't doing the difficult work is a lie. They're just not being loud about it. They don't see any need to be loud about it. They're doing the work quietly. Oh, I think that's a great way to kind of sum up what, what Hill, a lot of what Hillsdale is all about. Well, let's back this story up just a bit, because I know I first saw this, I want to say it was two weeks ago. I wish I had made copies of them. I don't, I can't find them anymore. But I, several of my uh, Facebook friends started reposting. I wonder why you can't find them anymore. Yeah, I know. I I think that's probably, (laughs) well, there's something about, I, I read something last week, no, this is a month ago, about the whole genre of the open letter and how that genre of writing has changed in the internet age. Because prior to the internet, you could write an open letter, but you actually had to get it published in a print media. And now anyone with a blog can write an open letter, as evidenced by our conversation. But it it makes it really easy. I, I, I'm terrified. I, I have written my share of angry emails that I have let sit there and then just deleted about 10 minutes later, just out of terror that I might accidentally send the thing. These first two... so. I saw these two open letters, and they're written by Hillsdale College alums, and I think one of the things that Hillsdale has done very well is produce students who are very good at putting words together. Uh, That's something that tends to come out of a a strong liberal arts program. Well, whoever wrote these original letters, uh, the first one was a little less radical, the other one was, the second was a bit more angry, but they were both calling for Hillsdale to adopt one of the now ubiquitous statements siding with the Black Lives Matter, either sentiment or movement. Either one, I think, would have satisfied this letter's demand or expectation, but generally affirm that racism is bad and the college is opposed to racism. And then the a uh, couple days later, the Collegian, the Hillsdale's uh, news, college newspaper, published a response from the administration. And again, I don't know who wrote it. It was very, it held together very well. Uh, you, you spoke very positively of Dr. Arn in your, your letter, so I don't want to bash Dr. Arn. I have a lot of trouble connecting the dots when Dr. Arn speaks or writes. There's a lot of implied connections this this wrote like maybe Dr. Whalen wrote it or something. It, it it wrote like some of the more just the it was very clear, very cogent, and it es- essentially established I think two things. First, that the college is not bound to the concerns of the moment, but instead is following what Russell Kirk called the the perennial things those those things that are always important to think about which we usually have a shorthand around Hillsdale circles of the good, the true, and the beautiful are like the shorthand mm-hmm. for those eternal things. But then secondly, that really it's the part that, um, Tori, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, the college has done an awful lot of work in real terms to advance uh, equality and justice for minority groups. And the work that it's done is the work of education. It's the Barney Charter School Initiative is a project of the college to help start up charter schools in low-income areas where they work with existing communities to help them go through the process of getting a state charter so that they have funding for their school, and then they provide the curriculum. So, And then they become a source of professional development, for those schools and ongoing care for making those schools healthy places. 
And there's a huge network of Hillsdale alums who then end up teaching in Barney Charter Schools for a year, two years, and in some cases for career. And then also, uh, they, they mentioned just that, uh, now the, the letter from the college didn't mention the specifics uh, of this, but they did mention that Hillsdale has one of the largest networks of uh, scholarship packages that exist of any college nationwide, and that that often becomes an avenue for students who would otherwise not be able to attend college to go to college. And the letter ended with this great bit about how just really there's no need for the college to jump into the fray. Now, I loved that letter. I thought it was incredibly well done. I reposted it, and man, the, there's like, I think I have five or six, maybe as many as ten left-leaning friends from Hillsdale days who have gone on. They were center and left of center while we were at Hillsdale, but they've gone on to become very much left-leaning individuals. Whew! Uh, That thread was a fascinating exchange of ideas. They hated that letter. And then, Tori, I read yours, so I want to stop talking now and toss it back your way. Um, Tell me why you wanted to get into the fray and then kind of walk us through some of the story that you tell in that letter. What what was it that led you to uh, write outside of your normal wheelhouse of foster care issues and get into a, a, an internal dispute on the Internet in a very public way? Yeah. And if you look at my social media, too, I'm really not disputy. I don't get combative. The foster care movement is a bipartisan issue, which I love because no one gets mad at me. But in this case, I felt like... Right. We go back to the good, the true and the beautiful. And I felt like what I was reading was not true. And that was it was bothering me. I had let it sit for about a week. And initially, when I read the first letter. I I thought, oh, she's right. Yeah. Silence is violence. Yeah. They should speak up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I went to my husband and I was like, this woman wrote this letter that Hillsdale should speak up about all of this. And I think she might be right. Like, why aren't they speaking up? And he was like, yeah, that's, that's unusual because all of their values and all of the things that they do align with what that letter wants. That, that letter wanted them to say racism is bad, basically. <laughs> and... I thought about it and I was like, oh yeah, their values and what they do, do line up with what she wants them to say. And so maybe that's why they're not saying anything. And I still, there was an, I didn't, there was another letter. I didn't say anything. I didn't sign the petition. There was another letter that popped up, as you said, a second one that was written by a minority. And I think that's what that's what broke my heart because as a minority who was very underprivileged, who came to Hillsdale college, I transferred to Hillsdale college because I knew I wasn't getting a good education. I knew I was, I had just found my faith in Christ maybe a year before I went to college. And I knew that I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't reflecting Jesus in any kind of way at this college but I wanted to, but I didn't know how. I didn't have the community. But Hillsdale gave me all of that and more. I spoke, as you said, I spoke very highly about Dr. Arn. We had a lot of really good experiences together. If there was a round table, 
Ooh, I'm echoing. You're fine. You're Can coming you through that? fine over okay. here. Yep. You're good. Okay. If there was a round table, if there was an event, like our senior dinner, we always connected and we always talked about foster youth, vulnerable youth, those who are marginalized. And there was one time I held his hands at my senior dinner and we cried together. And he said, Tori, I love you. I was like, I love you too, Dr. Arn. And for me, my experience at Hillsdale, so many people, I think, experience it to be very political. The media expresses it to be very political. For me, the experience was very spiritual. Mm. For, for, I would say, the first time I understood my faith in a very full way, in a way that I could walk it out well. And I think that was not just because of the leadership there, but also because of the students that were around me. So that's why in the letter, I used very tangible examples because I felt like the other letters, they, they didn't use examples. There was not anything that was said that had happened to them or that had happened to a friend. And I didn't want to combat them with the philosophies they were using or the theories they were using. I wanted to show them like this is what Hillsdale does and they do it quietly. I think that that focus on examples is really interesting because it's very easy to make wild accusations and with flights of rhetoric. And it seems like those flights of rhetoric are very persuasive until someone else comes along and says, okay, can you give me an example? Uh, I don't know how many debate rounds I've judged where affirmative, usually in one of the styles of debate we do, uh, it's it's kind of a moral philosophy type debate called Lincoln-Douglas debate. And they uh, affirmative is usually having to affirm a hypothetical what should be done. And so somebody will come along and he'll build this beautiful theoretical case and then neg will come around. The negative side will come back and have all this data and concrete evidence. And I, I used to be a fan of just those kind of like theoretical, uh, theoretically sound arguments until I look back at my own ballots and realized, wow, I actually vote on evidence nine times out of 10. You've got to have an amazing theory case to get my ballot. But if you come back, if it's evidence versus theory, the concrete evidence wins so much more easily. I think mm-hmm. it makes it very persuasive. And yeah, and that's, yeah. An, that's an interesting point. My husband always talks about, my husband is much more political than I am. And he talks about how the left often uses stories to persuade people and to really move in people's hearts. And I think people assume that this agenda, this letter um, is, is right leaning. I think, again, I think it was just exemplifying the truth and I just wanted to lay out there what God had put on my heart. But I think I think the right is also persuaded by stories. I think they're also moved deeply. Stories are so, I, and I said that in the beginning, right? Like stories are so powerful when we can look at a human being and see the embodiment of their experience and what they went through. It's one of the, it one changes of the, our hearts. I, I think you're absolutely right. One of my favorite questions to ask um, people who have been in the speech and debate community 
years and years, whether they're still in it as high school seniors or whether they've gone on to be coaches or whether they were in it a little bit and they're just looking back on it, memory's sake. I usually want to ask them, like, why did you do this or why do you spend time in the speech and debate world? And the answer I've gotten consistently from over six, seven people now, I'd have to go back and count the episodes where I've actually asked that question. But they always bring up the idea of being of helping students articulating their own voice and being able to tell mm-hmm. their own story. And I think that's something that is just crucial because it's really hard to cultivate that voice. And it takes a lot of work. And I, there's something about the few people who do have the opportunity in high school or college to do that. They get out into the workforce and somehow they almost forget how hard it was for them to be able to articulate their own sense of self to other people. Uh, so I think your ability to do that is is quite remarkable. And, and then to use that to then help express the stories of other people is also a, a fabulous thing. Uh, now, so the uh, you, there was a sentence I want to ask you about uh, in your letter. Uh, you, you wrote, I look at my acceptance letter and diploma as symbols of the institution seeking justice and equality for those who represent me. And that is... Former foster youth, underprivileged, undereducated, pregnant student, white, black, woman, and person. Tell us what's behind this sentence. Why did your acceptance letter to Hillsdale College and your diploma eventually, from beginning to end, why did those two documents kind of represent all of that to you? So Hillsdale College, I would say that they focus primarily on essays in the interview that they do, right? And they had to focus somewhat on ACT score because Every year in the Collegian, we see that article that says the highest ACT scores it's still ever. There. They still do this? <laughs> they still do that. And apparently it's getting higher still every year. But I did not help with that. So that was a huge part is that my ACT score was not just below Hillsdale's average. It was below the national average. And I remember my track coach told me, he said, I can't believe you got accepted. This is the lowest ACT score (laughs) I have ever seen get accepted into Hillsdale College. And on my essays, I wrote that I had grown up with a mentally ill mother. I had grown up in the foster care system. I had just discovered who Jesus was and is. And so I think many people with Hillsdale College's reputation, they are prestigious. They are, they don't identify as Christian. I think they do now. They didn't when I applied. Yeah, they, they that was one of the things I, that was one of the reasons I ended up there was because they were not a Christian college. And I talked to a friend who works in admissions there. And apparently that was a, uh, that was a political move just in case Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. became president back in 2016. So they, they shifted that and they, they got some flack from alums when they, they shifted the identification because a lot of the thing I think people love about the college is that you have a huge number of committed convictional Christians from across the theological mm-hmm. spectrum. You also have atheist folks there you've got um we had a couple mm-hmm. mormon students when i was there there were yeah, we and then had a, a muslim bunch. young woman oh, go there when yeah. we were there there's a bunch of people who don't care they don't give a fig for religion but then somehow we there's something about the the fact that all those folks are there dedicated to seeking truth together that helps create a mm-hmm. really unique college environment but anyway back yes. to what you were saying yes yes And I think Hillsdale could have viewed me as 
someone who didn't care, someone who was high risk, someone who was going to be a statistic and probably drop out and make their statistics look bad. Because if you look at the track record, if you look at the statistics of foster care and even adoptive youth, that's what the statistics say about us. So for me, I just, I just felt like when I was accepted, they saw me not for what I was, not for what the statistics said I potentially could be, but for who God said, who God says that I am and who I could be if I got a good education and was supported by a strong and godly community. And when I got my diploma, I just felt like it was an affirmation of all of that. All of my friends in college, especially the close ones, they say, Tori, you grew so much in college. You are a totally different person. And I know what they mean. I know that they're saying I was a little poop head when I showed up (laughs) and I'm not so much anymore. And I think that I, I have to credit my education for that. There were a lot of great mentors in my life before the college, but to be three years in a community where people just try their very hardest to love people well, to exemplify God, to learn together, to hear one another, to understand my my values really did change because the people I was looking at, right? People say you become like the the top five people you hang around. And I Hillsdale forces you to be around really good people. And I think that's why I became better. Now, uh, which, which professors would you look back on as being really influential? Dr. Berzer was my favorite professor he was like, I would say he was like a father figure to me. Sometimes he, he, you know, we would be in class and he would talk about the good, the true and the beautiful. And then he would bring his daughter in and he would just hold her while he taught. It was, it was not so much what he taught, but what he did. Like I felt like he taught about the good, the true and the beautiful, but then you could see him living it out. And so he would just hold his daughter and talk to her while he was teaching us. And then some, you know, his wife is also a pre- professor And he would bring her in and they would teach side by side. And it was so evident that he always saw her as an equal and that he valued her not just as a mom or just as a wife, but as the person who she was. She was intelligent. She was also a teacher. And it wasn't this competitive or combative marriage. They were just in unity together. And he also my first year critiqued my writing a lot and that helped me, I would say, find the voice that I have now. And my senior year, I, I wouldn't say I was an influencer in college. I just did social media cause I've always liked social media, but I posted something and he saw it and he came up to me and said, that was the best writing I have read in probably the last two years. And you need to make sure that when you're when you leave here, you keep writing. And that stuck in my head. And I definitely stopped writing for a little bit. But when I get in this rut or when I think, oh, my gosh, I'm not a good writer or someone critiques the way I have written and it kind of pings, it hurts a lot. I do go back to his words because he's a good writer and he's a very good teacher. And I would say. The deans, 
were were really influential for me. People always talk bad about the deeds. <laughs> but I loved Chief. I he said if you can't love them, you can't lead them. Oftentimes we hear about leadership and we hear about how like we need to take charge and we hear about servant leadership, but we're not really sure what that means. And when it comes to leading my family, leading in this foster care movement, I always come back to that quote. If you can't love them, you can't lead them. That's a beautiful line. I, I, I didn't know Chief. I've heard about him from several students who were there after I was there. Uh, but I, I love Dr. Berzer. Uh, we called um, Mrs. Dr. Berzer the uh, she-Berzer. I don't know if that's still a thing there. But uh, yeah, they're, they're a wonderful family. He was... Oh my goodness! Uh, he was the he encouraged me to also continue to to, to write. Um, he 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 was my first. I've written a lot of articles like for various internet websites and blogs and so on. Uh, he was he encur- he helped me get my first one of those placed on the Imaginative Conservative and in- introduced me to one of their uh, just just you know that kind of email where like he knows Doctor Klugowicz and can be like, hey Stephen, and I'm like I'm over there thinking like. Dear Dr. Klugowicz, would you please consider possibly publishing, maybe even looking at, you know, if you don't have time, don't worry about it. (laughs) And and Brad can just write that whole like, hey, Steve, publish this kid's essay. (laughs) And boom, it's done. Uh, he was, he's just wonderful. We've kept in touch over the years. And uh, I think his wife gave me some of the best doctoral advice ever a couple summers ago. Uh, They're they're a wonderful family. Uh, Oh, yes. And I would say uh, Hillsdale the wife, right? There's so many professors, wives, and there's also students who are wives. And I assumed that that's something I would eventually be, was a wife and a mom. And so to be able to look at, I growing up, I didn't have a great image of a mom and a wife. And I got glances of it while growing up in different homes. And I did, I remember when I was in care, I felt like I did observe families really well because I wanted good for my own family. And I was like, how do I, like, I'm trying to figure out how do I do that? And at Hillsdale, I felt like there were such clear examples of moms and husbands raising their children well, who were having healthy marriages, godly marriages that were reflections of the gospel, which is the whole point of marriage, right? And so I felt like that was that also had just a huge impact on me. And even though I can't say like there was this wife, it was just like the like the patterns that they mm-hmm. all had or the things that they the different values they all tried to to embody. Well, that's fascinating. I think it's it's interesting. I I hadn't thought about this. I mean, obviously, we're I'm I'm looking. I'm thinking back on college from a from from my perspective, which I wasn't quite looking for like examples of of of, of wives and that. But there are a lot of uh, I think there are several female professors and then professors' wives who set very different pictures of of what it means to be a professional, capable adult woman. It wasn't the case that like. Ah, Hillsdale's this conservative fundy school where 
all women are in the kitchen and and barefoot and and babies and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there were all kinds of different pictures. Like, there's a diversity of what what that could look like. That uh, just gives a lot. That I hadn't really thought about the way that could shape people's imaginations. Yeah, for sure. And when I was in high school, I read Ayn Rand, and this is wild. It was actually Atlas Shrugged that led me to read philosophy that eventually led me to God. (laughs) I know that's so wild because Ayn Rand is an atheist. Oh. But I I identified with Ayn Rand and I loved her philosophy and I was like, oh, I I must be an atheist because I felt like I embodied who she was. Like she's a really strong woman. She's very – boisterous she says how she feels she says what she thinks that's me and I was like I feel like I have what this woman has more than I have like what the Christian woman has because so often we put the Christian woman together as she's in her home and she's cooking and she's cleaning and she's taking care of her kids and I felt even at when I was in high school that there was a story to be told I was already on some stages I was already writing a little bit and people would come to me. I was, I remember one time I had a debate about foster care and government and it was with a male. And I remember being insecure because it was with a male. I was like, Oh, as a woman, I shouldn't be debating a male and all these things. And then I felt like Hillsdale, as you said, gave me this image of, no, there are women who do this. And I, I had recognized before I went to Hillsdale that, oh, this is like a godly woman does not have to look this way. But again, Hillsdale affirmed that like godly women, Christian women don't just have to be in the kitchen cleaning, cooking and taking care of their kids. There is many ways to be godly. And sometimes that's teaching and speaking and many women and many professors, many professors wives did that. And it affirmed in me, like, oh, it's okay, like, if I do that. Well, Sorry, let me ask you about one other paragraph from your letter. Uh, that'll bring us back around to where we started with the phrase, silence is violence. Uh, you, you started kind of closing your letter with this paragraph. I, too, initially thought silence was violence. But over the weeks, I've realized that sometimes silence looks like paying for a plane ticket for a dream to be fulfilled, so broken lives might be healed. Sometimes silence looks like two years of working relentlessly to fund a scholarship for the vulnerable. Sometimes silence looks like not endorsing the system that oppresses the vulnerable for their own gain by refusing even a penny. Sometimes silence looks like handing a diploma to a young woman who doubted, who doubted they'd ever hold one. So I see at least a couple questions about this paragraph. Um, first, uh, and we, we've sort of danced around this, so we, we may not stay on this one very long. Uh, but let's just kind of clearly speak to it. Uh, what's the difference between the phrase silence is violence and your experiences at Hillsdale? Yeah, I I think that we are expecting everyone to speak up and say what we want them to say, to tell us what we we want to hear. And I think that can be a really dangerous place to be, especially if we're Christian, because then we are just, we're aligning ourselves with the world. We're saying, you need to say what culture is saying. 
you need to say what we're not looking to uh, a standard, which should be Jesus and saying we should be doing what he's doing. Instead, we're saying this is what culture is doing. This is what culture is saying. And why aren't you saying it? Why aren't you aligning yourselves with them? That's such a dangerous place to be. And so when I look back on my experience at Hillsdale, Hillsdale has never aligned themselves up with the culture. That's why we go there. That's why we love Hillsdale because they do, they have this uniqueness. It's really special. We learn so much there because they like, we could just go into society and learn what, whatever, but we go to Hillsdale because we want to learn something different. And I think it can just be so easy when we graduate, right? I told you, I went to my husband and I was like, right? Like, this is right, right? And it can be so easy once we're graduated, once we're out of this strong community that really does edify Christ to forget what that looks like. So in my experience, yes, Hillsdale, Hillsdale isn't loud, because they don't need to be, because they're very, they're not loud in the way that they speak. They're very loud in their actions. They're bold in their actions. I mean, let's look at their generosity, right? Barney Charter School would struggle to exist. I don't even know if they would exist if it wasn't for Hillsdale's partnership. Hillsdale is is the piggy bank, for the Barney Charter Schools that are helping these vulnerable youth get a good education. We think about the scholarships that are funded. Yeah, they're not explicitly for people of color, black people, white people. And I think I've, I've read in one of the letters that that's because Hillsdale is racially blind and they don't want to engage in the differences that people have. And that's not, I don't believe that's true. I believe Hillsdale doesn't want to count an entire population as their quota. They don't want to treat people like a number. Like these are, and that's part of living out the idea that these are human beings with human dignity who deserve equality. So if we really want Hillsdale to live out this mission of valuing all people, regardless of their race, they they need to not ask that question on their application as they do right now, because then it gets into murky waters of if there are more white people who go to Hillsdale, which there most likely will be because that's the majority of America, then, then we're saying, oh, now you're choosing the white people. And then the second part is you're, you're treating black people, you're treating people of color like, like they're just a number to make you look good. I don't want people to treat me like I'm something to make them look good. I want you to accept me because, again, like they did, even though I was a statistic, even though I was high risk, they saw the potential of who I could be and they saw who I was in Christ. That's a that's to say I, you summed up so much there really, really well. I think it reminds me of a... Uh... A moment where I think this was my sophomore or junior year, where uh, Dr. Arn had to deal with a minor scandal because the uh, he was doing mm-hmm. an interview, and I, I this has happened with him multiple times. So I think this this one circles around every three or four years, uh, where he 
uh, he was doing an interview with some, I think it was a newspaper in Detroit, and uh, the interviewer asked him, so what percentage of the uh, student body is Hispanic? And he just kind of shrugged and said, I don't know. Which point the interview said, what do you mean you don't know? Like, don't you know? He's like, no, we actually, like, we're... We're so not racist, I have no idea what the racial makeup of our student body is. And he went on to explain that because Hillsdale does not take federal funds, they're not required to hit racial quotas on the student body. So that literally is information that the administration conscientiously does not track. Uh, Whatever metrics the admissions office has uh, for admissions, and and I, I, I have no idea, I have puzzled my brain over this several times over the years. Like, what on earth does admissions use to make their decisions? Because I got to campus and I thought I was smart, and then I met everyone else. I was like, everyone here is smarter than me. I have my 1280 SAT score on the 1600 scale, which was not bad, but it was not impressive at all. I spent, I mean, I got my my B- and my C- from Jackson's Great Books 1 and 2, and Worked my tail off for both of those pretty unimpressive grades. I was a 3.2 student all the way through Hillsdale. There were always people smarter than me. I don't know why. I didn't know why I got in until like I was at a few years later. I was at a uh, an alumni event and there was a uh, the admissions counselor who handled my case or handled my application was there. And I was like, what 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 was it about my application that at all made you say yes? Because like looking back now, my I shouldn't have gotten in. I, I I don't think I'd get in competitively with who they let in today. And he was like, oh, in your interview, you talked about running your neighborhood lawn business. And that's when I was like, you should be at Hillstown. I was like, what? I didn't think, I didn't even remember that moment of the interview. I didn't think that was impressive at all. Well, so anyway, whatever metrics they use, they're they're not race based, and uh, because Doctor Arn wasn't able to answer this interviewer's question, uh, he then dealt with like six months of being accused of being super racist because he didn't know about the racial breakdown of the college. And I I think the distinction there is key to what these alums are are discussing. I mean, because we have some folks who want to completely change the orientation of the college to be looking at we should have some sort of equal representation of racial breakdown on the college campus. And there's something about Hillsdale's essence that is they're interested in a certain community, a certain kind of excellence, and anyone who they think is a reasonable guess of contributing to that certain kind of excellence, they're going to try to get you in there. I mean, and they're going to try to make it possible. And for some people, their family has the money. They can just pay for it for other folks. They're going to match you with some scholarship to to make it work, and I, I think that's really mm-hmm. amazing. And it's a it's a yeah. it's a harder kind of work than uh, I mean I the I've seen so many different organizations. They've not addressed. They've not looked at their own hiring practices. They've not looked at anything that they do. Instead, they put together a statement and they push the statement out. Well, the statement doesn't mean. Gillette or Amazon or Apple or Microsoft or any of the groups that have put a statement out actually have to change anything. They've covered their basis because they have a public statement. If they're doing any kind of violence, their lack of silence only seems to cover up the violence that they might still be able to perpetuate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah, that last part. (laughs) 
Now, um, Tori, you tell us about the scholarship that you're the scholarship fund that you are that uh, now did you inspire this? Are you the major in the main engine behind it? So what what's what's the story on the scholarship fund that you're you're part of? So when I was looking for colleges to attend after I graduated high school, my main objective was to not pay a penny because I didn't have a penny to pay and I didn't have a family to help me in any way. So I was just looking for different scholarships to apply to different grants. And in the midst of it, I came across Cedarville University's scholarship. They are a Christian college in Ohio. I'm originally from Ohio and they give full tuition to one foster youth a year. And I thought, oh, I I really want to go here because they, they obviously value taking care of the orphan and the widow. And that was, that's just a scripture. Of course, that's always been like in permanent ink on my heart. So I didn't end up going there because I ended up getting a full ride to another college where I really liked the track coach. And I, I have to admit sometimes I didn't know that I was going to college to get a good education. I was like, oh, I'm going to college to run track. And then when I was getting a really bad education, I realized that, oh, I need to go to college to get a good education, which is what <laughs> took me to Hillsdale eventually. But um, I saw that scholarship. And I was just inspired by it. And I was like, I want to start a scholarship like that someday. And I thought it would just be general, you know, like it wouldn't be for a specific school. And then I went to Hillsdale. I fell in love with the college. I fell in love with my village, the community there. I had all these conversations with Dr. Arn. He had sent me to places that that tries to raise up, that does raise up these vulnerable youth. And I just thought I want every foster youth to have an opportunity to go here to see the the opportunities and the fortune that this college offers vulnerable young people. So I graduated and my one of my friends, one of my I should say one of my husband's friends, went into institutional advancement and we were just having lunch. And I was like, I'm going to start this scholarship someday at Hillsdale College. And he was like, let's get started. <laughs> right? Like, like a good fundraiser does. And I was like, dude, we don't have the money for that. We have a baby on the way. We were moving for the second time and looking to move for a third time. All like before we had even done the second move. So it was just like, this is not realistic right now. He was really patient with me and he was like, well, let's just like draft, let's just like draft the, like, like who would qualify for it. And so we did that. And we, I suggested, I was like, I want, we want to be the main contributors. So we, in the scholarship, we have the biggest chunk of donation that can be given But I said, I want to make this a community fundraiser and I want to call it Be the Village because we say that takes a village to raise a child. And I feel that Hillsdale was my village. And so we started the Fostering the Good Scholarship and then we started the Be the Village fundraiser. And it's been so wild. And that's been another wild thing about this letter was that I wrote the letter because 
one, because I felt like what I was reading wasn't true. And two, because I wanted my professors and like the deans, you know, those people who had just encouraged me and loved me. And I, I had hoped that it got to Dr. Arn, but I had assumed, I assumed, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. It won't get to Dr. Arn. It did. But <laughs> um, I just wanted it to get to the people that I loved and the people that had loved me well. And it resulted in a lot of donations towards the scholarship, which has been so encouraging. And I've even had like probably a handful, like several people message me and say, I don't agree with your stance. I believe that the college needs to speak up, but where can I donate to your scholarship? And I just think that is Hillsdale College. That is what Hillsdale College is all about. Like we're going to have combating opinions. We're going to have people with big opinions. Their faith manifests itself differently. Our politics manifest itself differently, but we're going to choose love and we're going to choose generosity. There's something about that community. I mean, we all make it through hell week and, and get done with finals. And, oh, there's, even though we all, we, uh, I think you're right. That combating opinion is definitely a, that's part and parcel of the Hillsdale community. I'm so glad to hear that uh, people have been very generous towards your uh, towards this scholarship. And, and hopefully that will be helpful to lots of people down the road. Um, I'll, Tori, where can people go to find out about your work? And if they want to make a donation, I, I can't imagine that anybody listening to this will be like, ha I want to give like $250,000 to this. But <laughs> I, 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 it, it is entirely possible that uh, people might be listening to this and think, oh, I really want to support that. That's a really noble uh, endeavor. So where could they go if they wanted to support this scholarship? So ToriHopePeterson.com. And Peterson is spelled with all E's. I wrote a blog about fostering. It's called Fostering the Good Scholarship, and it just explains everything. So if you want to really know where your money is going to, um, why it's really important also during the COVID pandemic, because so many of these youth who are trying to be freed from the oppressive system of foster care, it's been very difficult because they're lacking opportunities like going to school, being involved in sports, because sports seasons have been taken away. As I said, I was a track athlete, and if I lost my senior season, I probably wouldn't have been able to actually go to college because that's the season that gave me my scholarship. So if you want to know just all of that, all of the details of that, go to ToriHopePeterson.com, check out my blogs, and the blog is called Fostering the Good, and it has a ton of links in there that can show you various statistics that I talk about and that show you where to donate um, the drop-down menu on that website. And if you don't want to donate to Fostering the Good, there's still a ton of other, like if you're like, I want to donate, but my agenda is different. There's a ton of scholarships you can donate to and they're all val- they're all just as valuable. Well, we will definitely link to uh, that particular blog post. Uh, I'll put that link in our show description. So that'll go out um, with this. Uh, Tori, you've mentioned uh, across this episode several uh, bits about the the foster system. I wonder if you could speak to this question briefly. Um, I may just be representing my own lack of knowledge as more general. Maybe everyone knows this, but my suspicion is that most people don't know very much about the foster system. Uh, I know we watched, uh, you, you, I'm sure you've heard of it, the uh, the movie Instant Family we watched a while ago. Mm. Uh, my wife and I both kind of fell in love with the idea. We've toyed around with maybe a couple years. Uh, we'd be able to kind of start moving towards fostering. Um, but tell us a bit more about what is it about the foster system that 
leaves students um, powerless or disenfranchised? What What is it about this system that is not working well for the people who are in it? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, it, it does start before the system. So youth are often coming from from the from places into the foster care system those places are abusive they are experiencing neglect there i think it's 60 or 70% of children who go into the foster care system drugs was an issue in in their biological home or in their family home which we know that drugs often cause abuse and neglect so they're coming from these these very difficult places. They probably have a lot of psychological trauma and they've never went through any kind of counseling. They probably haven't had very many resources. Chances are they haven't went to school on a regular basis because uh, their parents probably don't wake them up to go to school. Um, their parents probably don't help them get ready in the morning to go to school. So when they go into the foster care system, Oftentimes, they have to relearn a lot of things that were were in their lives for 5, 10, 15 years. And they have to go through counseling and they have to go through all of these things that where the foster care system does try and raise these young people up. But one of the reasons I talk about finding your voice and telling your story so much is because I think the foster care system really lacks. When I was in the foster care system, they really lacked normalcy. And when I when I say that, I mean oftentimes foster youth are treated different than biological children. Oftentimes because foster youth are considered a liability, especially when they're teenagers, they can't do normal, I'm putting quotes, air quotes, um, normal things that, their peers can do. So they can't go to the football game. They can't go to the bonfire. Then they're lacking social interaction. And we all know that we need social etiquette, social intelligence. I believe that social intelligence is the number one thing you need to get by in life. You can be smart, probably, probably social, emotional intelligence and, and dedication. If you have those two things, you can get, you can get through. But I think oftentimes these foster youth are lacking. So they're lacking education. They're lacking their, their family. And now they're in the system that doesn't want, that can't, right? I mean, they, they say they can't, but really they don't want to because they're scared of how it's going to fall back on them. Are they going to get sued as a county or as a caseworker if something happens to this child? Um, so they don't allow these young people to have opportunities to discover who they are that oftentimes like right people not in the foster care just take for granted. We can do sports. We can go to our friend's house. We can go, do that hobby that has that like has defined who we are as adult people and foster youth just often don't get have the opportunity to do that. And sometimes it's not so much the system as, because it's different from county to county, but it's not so much the system as much as it's the home. So maybe you'll have foster parents are paid, right? And I believe that they should be paid. They're doing really hard work. But you'll have foster parents who are more concerned about making a profit than giving purpose to a child. 
And so when, when that's the concern, when money is the concern over a human life, you're going to have a lot of youth who, because they haven't been valued, they don't value themselves. And then when they come out of the system, they don't know what to do. Man, that is just a, that's a heartbreaking description. I mean, and, um, yeah, I know that's, that's, I, I wish I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know there's, there's, uh, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are in the foster system nationwide. Is that, is that roughly accurate? I mean, we're, we're not in the Say that hundred, again? We're, we're talking about, the number, we're talking about hundreds of thousands. Are we talking about thousands? Or are we talking about yeah, hundreds? Yeah, so right now, the number of kids in the foster care system are around 400,000. Since Trump has been in office, he, the number has went down. Interesting. Um, for, the, for like the first time, I think, in 10 years. And he also just signed an executive order that hopefully will reframe the foster care system a little bit by, I don't know if it's mandating. I don't think you can mandate this, right? It's doing something where it's like calling, calling like nonprofits and places of faith to partner with the government agency, which is actually what Europe does, which is why the foster care system is so successful and so strong in Europe. Interesting. So a government and I guess NGO kind of and like a church or yeah. like a faith based nonprofit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really, oh, that's fascinating. And I'm thinking one of the things next year's policy debate resolution is all about criminal justice reform. And I wonder if there's a connection here because do you, do you happen to have any stats on hand or, or just want to speak to how many, because I know you told us beforehand, there's a disproportionate number of African-Americans who are in the foster care system. And then are there, is there then a high proportion of those who end up going into some kind of criminal activity after, because they, they, they are emancipated at 18, yeah. correct? So well, they, so they're emancipated. So there is, I should, I should talk about this. There is a misconception that at 18 foster youth are kicked out of the system. That is not true. Even when I was in care, um, that they had, they had, it's called extended foster care. So that means that foster youth can stay in care until they're 21. But the difficult thing is oftentimes foster youth don't want to because there are all those rules, those rules and those regulations of not being able to hang out with friends. If you go to college, when, and this was when I was in care, when I was in college or when I was going to college, I would have to stay in the town that I was in. And there was only a D3 school there. So I couldn't even get a scholarship for running track. So I knew that I didn't want to stay there. I needed to go somewhere where I could get a scholarship. And so there are all these rules and regulations, again, that are oppressive, that um, just want to keep foster youth where they are so the agency or the caseworkers never look bad. So most youth choose to emancipate when they turn 18. And in some states, I said it, it's until 21. In some states, it's actually until you're 24. So I, And I think because of the Normalcy Act, I think this was passed in like 2015 or 2016. So again, when I was out of care... And it, it is a, an act or proposal that says that foster youth, especially those who are older, need to be treated as if they were biological children. And that has done a lot of good work, too. And I think that has loosened some of those reins 
for when children, foster children do turn 18. But because the foster care system and the people in it have often caused so much hurt for foster youth, they just choose to emancipate. Um, I forget what your original question was. Well, I'm thinking I felt that, like I should yeah, answer that. I, was, uh, I want to see if there's any connection here to our ongoing oh, yes, issue yes, yes. on okay. criminal justice so, reform. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I studied in, in the summer of 2016, I worked for the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute and Steve Scalise. I wrote a policy and I studied and researched the psychological phenomenon called stereotype threat. So this is the idea that when a group, uh, when a population of people are, are a negative stereotype is placed on them they will embody that negative stereotype. And so we see that in, in black men um, in education, oftentimes if they take the test, even though if they have like as high as an IQ, they, as, as others, as like a really good IQ, they will test low because the stereotype is that black men uh, do poor in academics. But then if you put them on a basketball court, they'll do really well because the stereotype is black people are really great at basketball. And there's been hundreds, hundreds of experiments to prove this psychological phenomenon. And I studied it in, in terms of foster youth, because as a foster youth, there were pretty negative stereotypes placed upon me. Uh, I'm bound to have mental illness because my mom did or because I experienced trauma. I carry all this baggage with me. I probably have bad behaviors and I was, I was very intrigued because for me, these stereotypes were, they, they gave me like a reason to prove everyone wrong, but often, more often than not, the, the phenomenon, the stereotypes make people vulnerable, people especially conform to the stereotypes. And so foster youth and black men are criminalized. They're often criminalized. That's a stereotype. And so you have two of these populations made into one. And so it's like, like double, you know, it's like double, this is like a double criminal. And the statistics show that foster youth after they turn 18, think they have a 40% chance of being imprisoned, of dying or of being unemployed by the time they turn 21. Whoa. Yeah. Does that, how often does that become a self-fulfilling prophecy? I mean, so if they, they perceive themselves that way, do they end up acting in ways that they either die young or, or, or any of those three options? Do those actually occur? You know, I, I love the book Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, J.D. Vance says something in there about, how we can't expect the, the person to get a home run if they're, if they're stuck out on the parking lot. And what I always say is like, you can't expect someone to pick themselves up by the bootstraps if no one's ever given them boots. And so I think in that way, I think sometimes to make ourselves comfortable, we want to say, oh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But like sometimes it, it goes back to what Hillsdale does, right? They give us the boots. Mm-hmm. They put us on the baseball field. 
And I think that's like when I think about like my call to action or like what we should do, like we shouldn't, we can like type with our fingers out of compulsion, but if we're not changing our lives out of conviction to help people and move the mission forward, then those words are just pointless. And so self-fulfilling prophecy, I think those, I think those exist. I think those, that's relevant, but I think, for vulnerable populations, especially, we got to give them the boots. We got to help put them in the places, the baseball field, so that they can hit the home run. We got to help in some way. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I think what you're just to kind of string some of those things together. If people are hitting, if foster youth are hitting 18 and probably less self-conscious of this, but they really lack a lot of the emotional and social intelligence of their peers. And they choose to free themselves from governing responsibility, from governors and legal and, and familial mm-hmm. senses. And then they make poor choices in large part because they don't have other options or other tools. Uh, mm-hmm. Changing that story involves uh, a lot of other pieces where education becomes a big part of it, but also helping people imagine their lives going in different directions. Yeah. And I felt like I had the mentors that allowed me to see my life in a different direction. And then I did that internship in D.C. And because many so this internship was specifically for vulnerable populations, specifically for foster youth. And they knew that a lot of us were coming from poverty. And so they took us through etiquette class. We sat at a, like a fancy table and this woman showed us like what all these forks and knives meant and where you pour what into what glass, which I never knew these oh, things. Those kind of dinners and, are so intimidating. If you don't know what you have like eight utensils around a plate. Right. It's, it's, and nuts. it's, it's wild. And then I, Oh, and then there was another, I should mention this. There was another woman who taught us about, because we all had pretty powerful stories, right? We had, come from poverty we had come from difficult places and somehow we ended up on capitol hill so she taught us about oversharing and undersharing and how we can express our stories appropriately which a lot of us again we didn't that's like that's a social that's an emotional intelligence thing that many people don't teach us so then when i went back to hillsdale it was like oh i have this place where i can apply all that i'm eating with these donors i'm eating with these people who who come from places of where the fork and the knife does matter and the the way i use the fork and the knife is going to make them more comfortable in having a conversation with me and i know some people say oh well, we shouldn't have to do that people should just accept us as they are as we are but i also believe when i was in foster care a huge motivation of mine to be who i am to be better than the statistics was that I was representing an entire population of people and people can look to me as a former foster youth and they can say, Oh yeah, she does carry the baggage and she does have a mental illness and she has all this bad stuff. And that represents those 400,000 youth. Or they can look to me and say, wow, she's articulate. Wow. She's a really hard worker and she wants the good for other people. And then they can say, Oh, that represents that entire population of people. And that's how I want people to see me. And so sometimes how you use the fork and the knife, it really does matter because you're representing, if you really care about the people you're representing, and especially if they're vulnerable, use the fork and the knife, right? That's a a great, uh, great uh, note as we're kind of coming to a close on this episode. Uh, Tori, I just wonder if we could uh, think for a moment as somebody who is 
in a public communication sphere and wanting to advance in public communication, what advice would you offer to high school students who are looking at speech and debate events and maybe they haven't yet found the issue they're particularly passionate about, but they, they know that they want to be involved in making the world a better place? What advice would you mm-hmm. offer that kind of hypothetical high school student? Yeah, so for, for me, right, I have a story, and that's what, that's what has given me this trajectory. But oftentimes, people are like, I don't know. I don't know where to go or what to do. And I've been there, too. And a mentor once told me, if you want to figure out what your calling is and where to serve, then serve. Serve anywhere and everywhere, and you will figure it out. So oftentimes, when I'm, I'm feeling like I'm floundering, I just think, how can I serve today? How can I love today in my community, in my home? And oftentimes I will, I will just discover what I'm supposed to be doing in that day. And when you discover where you're supposed to be doing in a day, you discover where you're supposed to be doing in a week, in a month, and in a lifetime. Well, thank you, Tori, for joining us today for, uh, to share your story. And uh, I'm very excited to learn more about the Fostering the Good Scholarship. And hopefully that will hit full funding and be uh, able to go into effect soon. Ladies awesome. and gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to meet you. Talk to another Hillsdale alum. Hey. And this is my first time uh, speaking about the letter, uh, not writing about the letter with a Hillsdale alum. So that's really cool. Thank you. Marvelous. Marvelous. There's, a, uh, there's quite the network of Hillsdale folks out there. So I'm, I'm really glad we were able to connect. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us uh, today for this special episode of What's the Res? My guest has been Tori Hope Peterson. You can find out all kinds of stuff about uh, Tori's work and uh, more about how to uh, how you can support what she's doing with the Fostering the Good Scholarship at ToriHopePeterson.com. That's T-O-R-I-H-O-P-E-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.com. And uh, you can find out more about What's the Res uh, if you want to know more about our, our uh, podcast at whatstherez.com. If you have any feedback for us as a show or you want to send any questions or anything like that, you can do that over email at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can contact us over our various social media handles. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstherez underscore. And then we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstherez. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.